This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Just this week, Vice President Mike Pence and U.S. Senator Tim Scott actually explored together one of South Carolina's many opportunity zones, drawing attention to the investment initiative that the senator helped shepherd through Congress just a few years ago. Increasingly, the notion of a designated zone to offer developers tax breaks or even just create incentives to draw companies out to make investments in that area has been an approach du jour when it comes to economic development and economic revitalization in that community. But at the same time, the designation of zones that have tax incentives for developers and all types of individuals minded to develop that region, we have a backdrop in America of how people take advantage of tax loopholes or advantages in this country. Just last week, Amazon famously or notoriously pulled out its call to designate its second headquarters location up in the Queens area of New York after calls from progressive flanks of the Democratic Party routinely said that its leveraged advantage over multiple tax breaks promised to the online web company were too far and a tax bridge and incentive far too deep when it came to the ailing problems of several New Yorkers trying to pay the bills day to day. Opportunity zones, though, are a little different, and in fact, they have a number of unlikely bedfellows. If you take who has an alignment on this issue, it includes not just Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Tim Scott, but also Napster and Facebook early executives Sean Parker, presidential hopeful Cory Booker, and even the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, that have all advanced, championed, and used the Opportunity Zones designation as a means to really draw investment and really create a sense of anchoring new hopes, new prospects, and new opportunities for each of their regions and regions around the country. But what exactly do these zones do? And do they actually create the sense of promise that the initiative claims to want to achieve, at least in the way that it was described in legislation just a couple years ago. Joining the podcast today is Eddie Cullen. Eddie has not only written about Opportunity Zones, but is an early stage technology founder himself. In an era in which Amazon gets critiqued for where it places its own offices, there's also this era of concern around where tech is increasingly deciding to do its business. As a tech founder himself, Eddie will opine on not only what it means to invest in an opportunity zone, but how these opportunity zones can be a mix of creating a new arc of character for regions that have often been overlooked, both by the United States development arms, but also by technologists themselves. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Eddie, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Uh, great. Glad to join. So I guess I want to take a step back. Um, this designation is a relatively new 
designation in America, and it seems to be heralded um, by all stripes of individuals in the country. Obviously, the vice president of the United States was just there. Um, you have technology executives that have been pushing for the designation um, for, for a number of years now. And a few years ago, legislation actually passed to create this unique class of, of designation for what it means to, to be an opportunity zone. Can, can you walk us through what exactly each of these zones are and, and what it means for a business that's thinking about um, building out something in, in South Bend, Indiana versus in San Francisco, California? Yeah, absolutely. So opportunity zones are census tracts nominated by governors and certified by the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So investors can invest in new projects uh, that can spur economic development for certain tax benefits. So they're more or less investment vehicles, and uh, opportunity funds can uh, provide three substantial tax advantages to investors. So you can defer capital gains. There can be a reduction of capital gains tax realized, and then there's no tax on any capital gains from an investment in an opportunity fund after 10 years. Uh, so what that means in layman's terms is uh, you can basically roll uh, profits from stocks and uh, selling of properties into these qualified opportunity funds. And those opportunity funds can only invest uh, into uh, qualified opportunity areas. So every single state has opportunity zones uh, and also some of the territories as well. So Puerto Rico, for instance, has uh, you know two affordable housing projects. Uh, under development right now through Christian Wakefield uh, to, um, you know, mixed-use retail development in Washington, D.C. to, uh, you know, we're hopeful, you know, other types of real estate opportunities. Uh, there also is a chance to invest in technology companies themselves. So the regulatory environment has not yet been completely uh, defined yet. So even though the Opportunity Zone uh, bill was passed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2017, around April of, uh, April of last year, the Treasury Department accepted uh, opportunities on track from governors. And then those governors uh, were able to designate certain areas that really needed economic development. And uh, the first regulatory proposals were guidelines, I should say, came out around October of last year. And then uh, investors had a number of questions on a few things, for instance, like, Let's say a property is sold in an opportunity zone. Uh, can you take this gain uh, that were uh, achieved in that sale and can you roll it back into another property? Hmm. Uh, you know, there was, you know, a number of questions for, you know, just uh, the IRS to actually define a little bit further. And the second hearing was actually for uh, December, but because of the government shutdown, it had to be pushed back. And February 14th, so that was literally last week, and I was actually down in Washington, D.C. for it is uh, the hearings were just asked a number of different questions. So you're going to see over the next month people actually putting capital into these opportunity funds. But uh, most people, I don't think, will deploy actual capital until those guidelines come out. Uh, so you'll see, I think, a push in the second half of this year where a lot of capital will actually come in. And to go to your point on the different types of investments, uh, you know, there's the first movers are really going to define what opportunity zones are and what this market is all about. Uh, there was actually an article released yesterday in the New York Times talking exactly about this. So, you know, some people are worried that you're going to see deals like Amazon and the gentrification of neighborhoods where some people think you could actually bring um, a lot of great investment to community areas. So 
you know, I think the first movers, if they have some sort of mission or some sort of um, social impact aspect to their fund, the optics are going to be very important. Like for instance, I think the affordable housing development in Puerto Rico is fantastic. You know, I think they need private investment. I think they need uh, projects like this. Uh, but, you know, it still remains to be seen if those are the types of projects. And, you know, you'll see a number of different funds being raised right now. There's a $75 million fund being raised for Brooklyn Housing. There's actually a $5 billion fund being raised. There's um, you know, $500 million fund being raised by Crescent Advisors in Chicago. So there, it ranges the gamut right now. Uh, and when investors are really off to the races and trying to make this work. Uh, so I'm pretty hopeful on opportunity zones. I think it's a little bit different than, say, uh, you know, some of the proposals of the past. Jack Kemp had something in the early 90s called Enterprise Zone, hmm. um, but that was really specific for enterprise and corporations and bringing them with no real federal oversight. But I do think opportunity zones can be beneficial if the first few funds really lead the way and, and charge on how we can make these investments to uh, help communities. And it's an incredible sort of evolution from just this this zone de uh, legislation, sorry, being passed just a couple of years back to the sheer tonnage of funds, as you mentioned, that are being raised. And uh, according to the U.S. Treasury, it seems that more than 8,700 uh, eligible census tracts have been designated um, as these zones, both in urban, suburban, and rural areas across the country. And, and yet there's a little bit of a question around their um, – let's say their effectiveness and and that might be a little unfair because this is an early approach uh, you know it's just a few years old and as you said the investment funds are just being shored up and so we need to give it some time perhaps to deploy that capital and see how it plays out um but you know since you mentioned the new york times um just uh last week actually the new york times had an op-ed um that tried to challenge whether or not the funds were having their intended uh, purpose. Um, according to Ann Carnes, writing for the Times, the funds are spurring interest among investors as a way of deferring and reducing capital gains. Um, and all too often, critics are saying that maybe a, a lot of the investments, um, according to the Urban Institute's analysis, a quarter of designated zones already had relatively high level of investments. Um, some might say that, therefore, money is being pulled into quote-unquote safe bets. Um, but yet, we see the financial financial markets, as you laid out, um, are creating quite a buzz about this. And so I guess I'm curious from your perspective as an early thought leader in the space and as someone that's eager to see more and more capital deployed to these distressed communities, how can we as a nation make sure that this zone designation actually has the intended purpose of, of creating the opportunity, the dignity of work, and the kind of innovative clusters that the uh, zones were uh, you know, described could do from the floor of the Senate when Senator Cory Booker was pushing for this and not just simply become a series of safe bets? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. You know, it's an interesting dynamic. You know, I, uh, I was down in D.C. a few weeks ago. Just talking on, you know, people on both sides of the aisle, it seems like there's, there's a lot of support here from a Republican and Democratic aspect. I think the intentions were good in building this out. But, you know, there's always questions. You know, you look at the uh, the Amazon deal, uh, that fell through in New York a couple weeks ago. You know, there's there's people who agree with who agreed with the deal. And there's people who aren't. Uh, so people have mixed opinions about giving tax breaks uh, and incentivization to uh, larger corporations and investors. Uh, but I think there's a couple ways to keep 
uh, keep tabs on how these develop. One, uh, a few things. One is, I think the early thought leaders are going to be very important. So, having a mission and having a you know, mission-driven alignment on the types of investments that are being made, uh, and then sticking to that mission. You know, if uh, you know if somebody wants to invest just in affordable housing for low-income communities in the Southwest, then great. You know, you want to keep a tab on that. You know, you also want to look at someone wants to build learning and development centers in, uh, you know, crime-stricken areas, you know, then that's, you know, another great thing. I think second is, uh, I think, investment frameworks. So Georgetown University is actually doing a great job right now in a leadership position now is creating impact investment frameworks and criteria for people to follow. So if, you know, you have your fund, you have to meet those sorts of criteria. I kind of compare it to almost the B Corp that came out about yeah. 10 years ago. You know, how do you really keep tabs of metrics and, and filing and being able to show that, you know, you are investing in opportunities. Also. Another interesting thing are just the actual, you know, regulations themselves inside of the qualified opportunity, you know, funds. I think the, the regulations and the, uh, you know, that was passed by the IRS actually creates, you know, you know, for eligible investors, some sort of, um, you know, honest ability to make those investments. You know, I'll give you an example here. So 90% of the assets actually have to go into opportunity zones. So you can't, you know, if there's a property in a zone uh, and then across the street there's another property, you have to invest in that zone. You can't invest outside of it and you will lose your designation if you do so. You know, another thing is, uh, you know, for instance, substantial improvement or original use are the two types of qualified opportunity fund properties that you can invest in. Original use is yet to be defined yet by uh, the IRS, uh, so that will come out in a little bit. But substantial improvement is pretty simple. If, if you buy a property and you acquire it for, say, a million dollars, you actually you actually have to put in another million to improve that property. You have 30 months to make sure that property passed the substantial improvement test. So I think since there's a, a check and balance on you know both sides of the aisle, uh, Republican and Democrat, and I think it's come from tech leaders. And this has been going on since 2013. Uh, you know, I do think what's in place can actually, uh, you know, bring about the right uh, investments in these areas. They're they're intended what they're they're really intended to do. But to be honest, it's really going to be the early movers. You know, who is, you know, the ones that are really focused on bringing this together? You know, there was a uh, an early stage opportunity fund conference in Salt Lake City this year where they were asking the same questions. You know, how can we make sure that these opportunity zones are, are for the right reason? Now, the one other thing I do like about this, too, as well, is that it invites a number of people. You know, you look at the Amazon deal, only really Amazon and corporations can take advantage of a deal like that, you know, and they're a pretty large company. Eligible investors for this are individuals, partnerships, uh, settlement funds, ownership funds. Uh, so you can get the, you know, the the average investor, or I shouldn't say average, an accredited investor who can make $25,000 investment. So you'll see a mix of individuals and bigger corporations. You know, I think it's just, you know, keeping tabs on people who are, you know, like I said, early and, you know, frameworks like Georgetown University, and, uh, you know, making sure the optics are, are sound in terms of, of uh, these funds. Uh, I believe right now that uh, there's an organization tracking you know, opportunity funds and how much is being raised. I think about $18 billion in funds are collectively trying to be raised right now. Wow. At least in the New York Times article. So 
you know, there's $2.3 trillion in unrealized capital gains. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I, I think that, you know, the, the early leadership will be super important. So I'm hoping some of those people step up. And you know the it's great to hear that there are accountability metrics or steps um, being implemented uh, a bit in real time, but being implemented nonetheless to make sure that money raised and money deployed is going towards the spirit of what the zone is aiming to be. Um, but you know, stepping out of kind of the pure financial metrics uh, of what this promise can be, um, there's also a very real focus on what this might mean for the identity of these communities. Um, specifically, Opportunity Zones try and shore up investment and and uh, workplace opportunity for distressed communities, which can be defined a number of ways, but in short, um, can be generally summarized as often overlooked communities that don't seek or, or sorry, attract a lot of um, technological R&D. They don't necessarily have a lot of venture capital within their ecosystem. Sometimes they can be devoid of basic infrastructure um, that, you know, tends to, to help blossom um, other sectors. Uh, and sometimes they could just be a place that most Americans chalk up to small town America. Uh, curious from your perspective, the of the 8,700 or so zones that have already been designated, uh, what what kind of vision do you think can be realized by really having targeted sustained investments here? And, and by in terms of vision, I mean specifically, you know, there's certainly a financial element to why millions and millions of, of dollars would be raised for these funds. However, there's also a very real aspect to the way America almost glosses over the heartland, you know, flyover states to even regions that, that may be along the southern border, which I want to talk about in a minute. Um, they, they aren't often places that you see a ton of, um, you know, young whippersnappers right out of undergrad looking to go set up shop because they feel like uh, it might be a little less crowded than, say, going to Boston if you're in the medical device game or going out to Silicon Valley if you're into the, the online uh, or like the digital game. What exactly can we expect to realize, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now if we're able to make these zone investments today in terms of the people that live there and the people that call that place home? Well, I definitely think there could be, you know, you know, when you look at, you know, once the the regulatory environment comes out where, it, you know, they say you can actually make investment in tech companies and services and things outside of real estate, um, I'm hoping that you'll see a combination of different elements from uh, people in the space. You know, I'm, I'm one person that comes to mind is Andrew Yang in Venture for America. Absolutely. You know, he was a, Another presidential uh, candidate. Yes. Uh, and he was a big proponent of opportunity. Uh, with the Economic Innovation Group, which is the group started by Sean Parker. Uh, so he is was always big about bringing, I think, programs to areas that needed the help and figuring out a way to bring talent to those areas to actually work on prob uh, you know, problems within that area, you know, places like Detroit that needed the you know, intensive labor capital. I I'm thinking of a friend that actually went through Venture for America from New York, went through the program, really liked the area, and then signed on with Ford and kind of do, uh, you know, self-driving AI uh, type of tech, and he's a great developer. So, you know, a program like Andrew Yang's was able to attract that talent there, keep it, uh, and, you know, was able to, you know, help that community. The interesting part of QOZ, uh, you know, QOZ, 
QOZs, which is uh, opportunity zones, is there are ways to actually, I think, to bring in R&D and solar investments. And, you know, there's there's actually tax credits aligned to that as well. So if you, you know, want to do research and development, there are additional uh, credits that can uh, be added into, you know, those uh, real estate investment properties. So when I think of uh, an area, you know, I really think we can bring up engineering from, uh, you know, engineering, software and tech, environment, life sciences, manufacturing, design. I think you also need to have the community to, to keep tabs. I mean, you look at the Amazon deal, uh, the community really came out, <laughs> you know, for, uh, you know, speaking up against that, uh, that deal. They, you know, they weren't happy with it, some of the community members in terms of rents going up and gentrification. So I think the community is to keep tabs on what investments are actually coming into the area. You know, I think I'm you know, hoping that there are these accountability metrics or accountability frameworks that can provide investors with the ability to go on the ground and actually speak with community leaders before making specific investments. You know, some communities might need a, you know, learning and development center for, you know, engineering and, uh, you know, continued education and technology, while some might just want, you know, a major retail complex so jobs uh, can come into the area. So I think keeping tabs on what a community actually needs uh, before making those investments will not only help with the return on investment for investors themselves, uh, but I think will bring the most value to, uh, value to communities. So it's got to be local leaders that really kind of define what those markets are about. You know, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit about the southern border, but it's, you know, for Someone's making an investment in Minnesota or Chicago or Detroit. I think someone like Andrew Yang understood that you needed to go and experience that area to be able to help the most. So firsthand experience, I think, in those designated areas are going to be the most important and listening to those actually communities. Because Wyoming is going to be a lot different than Chicago. And Detroit's going to be a whole lot different than San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, so... You know, that's what I, I think could happen. You know, I'm hoping 10 years from now that we look back and we say, okay, each opportunity zone had their own culture, their own, uh, you know, investment criteria defined based on what the local needs for the community were. Uh, but that's got to that's gotta be up to the investors that step up you know, and the early movers and the early shakers in that entire process. Absolutely. And I think this notion of trying to make sure that you are wielding the investment correctly and you're doing so cognizant of the kind of unique the eccentricities of that community or the nuances of the culture of that community are going to be really, really important. Um, I, I, I think that one could argue that that notion of what a community is or isn't is playing out in real time right now when we dissect what the border communities of McAllen, Texas, of Brownsville, Texas, all of those along the southern border um, that routinely get painted as a hotbed of criminal activity, of almost hostile activity from our neighbors to the south in Mexico um, take place if, if you tune into the administration and their characterization of the situation at the border, most recently actually being referred to as a national emergency. 
Separately, though, you had just last week um, dueling press conferences from this president as well as the mayor of El Paso, Texas, um, calling out how hostile it could be from the administration's perspective, but also detailing what level of promise and culture and community um, a city like El Paso is and, and what that community means to be. When you have these kind of disparate perspectives, one might left one could be left wondering what exactly is this community and when it comes to investing in that community in the right way um, I would imagine given this very prominent fight in this example or other examples around the country it would be really really important to understand what's anchoring the sense of of economic uh, distress or economic hope um, as well as you know what what exactly is the history of that community and, and where could it be um, where could there be an opportunity to, to move it in a different direction, a more promising direction, or, or simply a more technologically forward direction. I, I drill down on the southern border because you've specifically written um, about that, and, and you've proposed um, in your piece in uh, the American Jesuit Review um, the a concept of a border fund um, that would specifically take a look at the U.S.-Mexico border through the Border Freedom Fund and cre potentially create employment, housing opportunities, um, and, and other revitalization efforts for this region as a means to kind of both use the opportunity zone, but also as a means to push back against this vilification of what the border community is or isn't. Tell us a little bit about your idea here and, and, and what you think this might mean for those that try and cross the border or rather the immigrant rich tapestry that is the community or that are the communities of the southern border. Yeah, absolutely. So just to provide some context, about 10 years ago, I actually did a volunteer program uh, living in Arizona. Excuse me. I actually spent some time in Nogales on the U.S.-Mexico border, so I've seen firsthand what it's like to be in that area. Now, ten years ago, you know, things were way different than they are now. I believe, uh, in terms of just the uh, mainstream nature of talking about the southern border. Uh, you know, I actually had reading a book. Uh, it's actually John McCain's book, A Restless Wave, and a lot of the first. 100, 150 pages, or I even say the beginning part of the book, he talks about there is a want, I think, from a lot of Americans for comprehensive immigration reform, uh, just in terms of looking at all the angles. But I, but I think that goes back to for that to even happen, you really have to understand what's, I think, going on on the ground in each one of the cities. Uh, you know, the you know we've targeted to look at a few different cities that we could possibly make investments in, like 15 or 16 of them. And uh, you know, each one of those cities is going to have a different culture and a different uh, vibe to, to what's happening on. But I really think an investment fund could really advance the financial and socioeconomic progress of our border states with investment and community building. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've had a few conversations with people where we believe affordable housing, learning and development centers, each one of these areas could be very helpful. Uh, and even though the cities in California may be different than the cities in Texas, there is kind of that unique border town uh, vibe and community building in each one of these areas. So, you know, when I was looking at opportunity zones, I noticed there's about 25% of those zones are designated as, uh, sorry, 25% of the 1,957 mile border is designated as an opportunity zone. So, you know, you look at, you know, a few that come to mind that are some of the major cities are McAllen is, is one of them. Uh, you know, you think of 
uh, you know, Douglas, Arizona, is another El Paso, uh, Brownsville, and, uh, you know, Eagle Pass, Texas, which is another big port of entry city, uh, Calexico or Mexicali. Uh, and, you know, the, the reality is, is that our American border cities is private capital. You, know, you can even look at the, the Cross-Border Trade Investment Act, which was, um, you know, passed from a bipartisan perspective. You know, you had John Cornyn from the Senate on the bill itself, and you had uh, Beto O'Rourke. You know, there's a real possibility that they might actually be opponents in 2020 for the Senate. Um, you know, there's also, but they were supported the fact together across the aisle that the border cities needed capital. So they passed something called the Cross-Border Trade Investment Act. You know, so what that does is it gives ports of entry the ability to go into public-private partnerships to invest in those ports of entry. Uh, you know, they need about $5 billion in capital improvements, but they're only met with an annual appropriations of about $246 million. So you're looking at 34 years it's going to take for them to reach that $5 billion. So for me, it's, you know, you look at this fund that we're trying to raise is, uh, and I plan to take a trip down to the border around May 1st. I'm going to stop in all of our 15 cities and, you know, have conversations and reunite with some of the relationships that I built 10 years ago, have these conversations with local leaders and mayors, community development, and, you know, ask, what are the real needs here? Um, and so far, we've heard that affordable housing can be a really good one. And that's not only for immigrants and people living in those communities, also Border Patrol. You know, we, you know, Border Patrol, the quality of life down in those areas from conversations that we've had is, is not very high. So if we can increase the quality of life or even our border patrol, portable housing and living development, and, you know, provide more opportunities, we think it will be a healthier environment. You know, like I said, it's easier said than done. So I think the, the most important part for me is actually getting down there, having conversations while we're raising this fund and working on it. But, you know, I think for comprehensive reform to happen, you know, when I think of a wall or I think of, you know, bollard fencing or whatever physical barrier you want to put there, I don't think it's enough. You know, I, don't, I think it, there needs to be a combination of different elements, private investment. I think there needs to be elements of new tech and new uh, security measures. I think there needs to be more qualified ways for immigrants to come through. Uh, but there has to be a balanced element of all of that. To do that, you know, we think opportunities don't prevent a great opportunity for not only to bring the private sector into these areas, but uh, to also improve uh, the community. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm excited to to really get this moving. And, you know, I'm hopeful that something like this can help with defining what opportunity funds are, and what the mission of opportunity funds can be. You know, we really want to focus on these areas that are really economically distressed, um, you know, and, you know, work with community leaders for those types of investments. So I think there's a growth and a path for economic uh, revitalization in, in all of these areas. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that each one of the four states that we work with, uh, you know, we can create some sort of community around it. So, you know, you know, we're super excited about what this could mean for the southern border. But, you know, before we can deploy capital, we have to, we have, to have those conversations with people in the community. And I think people forget about that. You know, people are watching television. People are watching, uh, you know, different rhetorics from both sides of the aisle on this issue. And I, I think we forget we're human sometimes. I think you can just go down and have a conversation uh, and talk about it. And I think that's when solutions will really come about. So, you know, Opportunity Zones for me, you know, I get really excited because this 
provides an opportunity to bring private investment to areas that that couldn't have this type of private investment earlier uh, in the year. And you know, I think you know there is bipartisan agreement on opportunity zones. So this is something that was agreed upon by both sides. Uh, and you know, and I believe that you know this can be something that can be sustainable over time because I don't think current solutions being proposed, they can end up being taxpayer pits. You know, we could end up putting so much money towards building, you know, walls or other solutions where, you know, we can create economic engines in these communities. Um, I think that could be beneficial for everybody. And, and do you think that specifically with your proposal for a border freedom fund um, to shore up investments along the U.S.-Mexican border, um, is this the moment in time to do that specifically because th those communities, just like many other distressed communities or designated zones in this country, could benefit from the investment? Or do you think there's, there's something specific about that region at this moment in time, at this moment in the way that that region has been characterized politically that requires this type of investment? I think it's a mixture of both. You know, I, I think it's, you know, there's awareness now on this issue. The border, it's not pretty. You know, it's, you know, I'll even think, you know, I think back to 10 years ago, I think about, uh, you know, border patrol, uh, you know, having to go out to the desert to get migrants and then those migrants having, uh, you know, real issues with parts of their body, like their feet, you know, and from walking across the desert. And, you know, there's real human um, danger for everyone down there, uh, you know, whatever that is characterized or defined by. But I think this is going to be an issue that's going to be in the mainstream now for the next 10 or 20 years because, you know, we've been looking for immigration reform for the last 60. <clears throat> you know, you can date back to, you know, even, you know, I think Ronald Reagan is when a lot of, uh, you know, immigration really started to happen around the southern border. But, you know, people, I think, are looking for a solution or a comprehensive, uh, you know, way to, you know, have a healthy border relationship. And I just think over the next 10 to 15 years, this is just going to be a continuous issue. So, you know, if we can take advantage of this opportunity zone, uh, you know, designation, then we should. To be honest, I think it has to be almost right now because that's what these opportunities are defined for. You know, right now, the census tracts only have them defined until 2026. So, you know, once these open, you know, you're only going to really have 10 years to make the appropriate investments in these areas. So political or not, you know, they're only going to be open for a certain amount of time until, you know, unless the IRS and the Treasury Department lengthens it. And there's been conversations about that, you know, bringing it to 2047 or 2050. But that's not, you know, set in stone yet because people want to see how these zones are being used. So I think the time is now, one, because there's people having conversations about it. Two, it's almost you kind of have to because the, the zones are uh, only there for a temporary amount of time. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm excited and hopeful that, you know, these will help create an economic engine. But it's really about bringing, I think, entrepreneurship, economic revitalization to these areas and just bringing, uh, you know, I think creating a healthier quality of life just for the human beings down there. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, um, I think, my perspective on it.
Yeah, I mean, I think that that paints an incredibly uh, promising vision for for how to both wed financial outcomes with uh, a, a dignity of work and dignity of an opportunity type outcome that that many communities all over the country and all over the world so sorely need at this moment in time. Especially as you know, one can can take a look at economies and see stagnant wages, skyrocketing health costs, and just the the concept of that American dream um, being you know out of touch for for many that we call our own neighbors and community members. I, I am curious, and you know, you mentioned the New York Times article um, that published just this past week on the Opportunity Zones. I kind of want to conclude by asking you about this moment in time that, that we're, we're sitting on, uh, not when it comes to the politics of the southern border, but rather the, the sort of politics of technology uh, and, and the way it's perceived in different communities. Um, you know, you did mention or made mention of the Amazon challenges in New York City in the context of that corporation not truly understanding the ethos of New Yorkers, the 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 sentiment and the mood that was happening on the ground in Queens, um, and they were ultimately blindsided for it. Um, you did advise that anyone that seeks to leverage these funds needs to do so with a very targeted approach and a way that's mindful of the the culture of that uh, designated community. Um, there are, however, critiques out there that say that this might be Wall Street's hottest new investment vehicle. And if you take a look at the backdrop of how technologists and technology has sort of been characterized as its honeymoon period ending with, you know, clouds of scrutiny swirling over um, large household names like Facebook or Twitter and Google in terms of how their content and their platforms are used, but also what their physical presences mean for housing and transportation and quality of life and, and cost of living. Um, there's this kind of interesting alignment between what tech is perceived as now and what Wall Street uh, was perceived as back in you know the 90s and 2000s. And that might be an unfair or fair characterization that tech kind of represents this new era of consolidated wealth. And that wealth may not be distributed uh, among a few, or sorry, may only be distributed among a few. What, what do you say, um, you know, in response to anyone that reads the that that lead couple of paragraphs in this week's New York Times article that says that this is Wall Street's hottest new investment vehicle that you've got hedge funds and iBankers and money ma managers and even uh, Trump's former communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, all trying to raise billions of dollars for this. Um, is that an unfair characterization or is the intention, as you described it, consistent with the hope and promise that you laid out with your own vision for a border freedom fund? I think the, the points are valid. You know, it's you know, Anthony Scaramucci is raising a fund, right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. a lot of these bigger corporations are getting involved, and Wall Street sees it as a major tax break. You know, for me, it's, you know, the one thing about America is everyone's going to have, you know, there's a lot of different opinions. You know, there's a lot of people on the very wealthy side. There's a lot of people on you know, the very poor, economically distressed side. And I think uh, the only way to really move forward is if we figure out ways to work together in a healthy way. Uh, you know, the Amazon deal was, one of the more interesting things I think that has ever happened in New York. You know, I've been here my whole life, and you know, Amazon. You know, I think the build-up to Amazon, you know, picking a headquarters location, New Yorkers, you know, really wanted it. Uh, at least from my perspective in the, in the tech world, and, uh, you know, there was a build-up and a hope that we would get it. And then once we did, you know, there was an outpouring of like, wait a second, you know, is my rent going to go up? Um, and I think people start to think about their own daily. Uh, I don't want to say problems, but you know everyone has 
things going on in their life that really matters to them. You know, so for me, it's, you know, really, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, reaching across the aisle. You know, I know Andrew came up a couple of times in this conversation. You know, if you look at his presidential campaign, you know, he's been to Iowa a bunch of times. And he has a message of, hey, listen, the reality is, you know, tech may, you know, supplant a number of different jobs. You know, automation is coming. Artificial intelligence, you know, you know, technology is improving and improving and improving. And, you know, bigger corporations that are trying to make a profit are not going to slow down. You know, they're going to try to make as much money as they can. But, you know, are there ways and solutions where we can actually use that to our advantage uh, in communities that, you know, that aren't on the coast, that aren't Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley or, uh, you know, other emerging tech hubs like Austin, you can even say uh, Chicago or these other areas. What are some of the dynamics that we can do to or, you know, increase the ability for people reaching across the aisle and, and working together, but it benefits, you know, actual middle America. So I think you have to look at examples of like Venture for America or, or programs where we can hopefully increase the economic viability of certain areas. Um, and I'm hoping Opportunity Zones can do that. But like I said, to do that, you know, I'm, you know there has to be more mission-driven Opportunity Zone type of investments. If we let, uh, you know, the... Wall Street and, uh, you know, Anthony Scaramucci's and, uh, you know, some of the other bigger hedge funds of the world kind of define the entire market, then, you know, it will, it will turn into that. And then you'll see, a, and you'll see what I think what happened with Amazon again. You know, I think you'll see a number of people upset about, you know, what these opportunity zones mean. But I don't think that's everybody. You know, I think there's people like myself uh, uh, and Derek and, you know, others who are opening opportunity funds who actually want to see economically distressed areas receive more private capital so uh, for the right reason so I think um, you know making sure that the accountability metrics making sure that uh, you know, the right measures are in place before capital is deployed is very important the next month or two are going to be very very um, imperative to how these opportunity zones are <clears throat> excuse me uh, defined and used you know I heard about these opportunities probably January of last year, but no one really heard about them last year. They were, you know, they've been worked on for five years and they were kind of kept under the radar. They're just starting to now hit the mainstream. And I remember November of last year, even a few friends were like, oh man, these are gold mines. You know, these are, man, these are, you know, great opportunities to make a boatload of money. Uh, and then you had places like Georgetown, <laughs> like, whoa, wait a second. You know, what are these really going to be defined as? So I'm hopeful that you know, even though the Amazon deal fell through, um, whether you're on the right side of the aisle or uh, the other side saying, you know, this was a bad deal or a good deal, that there are people willing to keep, <clears throat> excuse me, deals like this in check uh, and keep it, you know, keep it accountable. So, you know, if people um, believe that it's just going to be a Wall Street tax break, I think they should educate themselves a little bit and then actually um, look to get involved with uh, opportunity funds that can actually be beneficial to the community. So I think I, it remains over the next couple of months, um, but, I'm, but I'm hopeful you know, that you know, the right investors and message will emerge. 
I, I think that that that's a an incredibly poignant message, specifically because at this moment in in history, where you do still have so many fellow Americans that uh, you know wake up every day feeling that maybe that that American dream for them might be a little too far stretched out of their reach. Um, there there can we can either be bogged down by the 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 context of cynicism and assume that everyone is out there for for their own personal greed or we can you know try and use a a per, an inventive vehicle like this opportunity zoom designation to try and apply um measured uh, objectively verified and and really sustained investments in the communities that could realize a benefit from them at, at a minimum um an experiment is always worth pursuing especially in the context of of what this country has been built upon uh, a series of experiments Eddie Cullen thank you so much for joining American enough and for your thought leadership in the space would love to have you or your business partners back as you continue to build out the Boredom Freedom Fund and and remain to see what what could be made possible by these opportunity zones. No, this is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.